You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vincent. them to Psalm chapter 36. Psalm chapter 36. I think we've got, counting today, five more weeks in the book of Psalms before we will transition to our next study. So praying and asking God to give me uh, guidance and direction and wisdom about the the remaining psalms that we'll cover before we transition to uh, a different direction. I'm excited to bring to you uh, God's Word today from Psalm 36. The last several weeks we've been in Psalm chapter 16 and and talking specifically about um, the ways that God provides for us and the ways that we can find contentment in that provision, Uh, the commitment level we have to God being tied to our understanding of those two key doctrines. We talked about God's power and God's goodness, and as we see his power, as we see his goodness, then we are uh, prone to trust him, right? And so we talked, the first week we looked at Psalm 16 from that Old Testament perspective, that David and the Old Testament saints would have seen uh, this hope about uh, God's provision. We saw the the communication about the lot lines or the um, property lines that God gives to us and how we can find contentment there. But then last week for Easter, we talked about the, the hope of resurrection, that we're set free from a fear of Sheol or a fear of uncertainty when it comes to the afterlife, that instead we can see that the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope for our own future, right? So God's power, he's a place of refuge. God's goodness, he's the source of good for all that we experience. But then in the New Testament, we see the application of Psalm 16, that it's Jesus' resurrection, that he validates the hopes that we have, that God can carry through with the things that he's promised to do for us. We saw Peter and Paul both preach about Psalm 16 in the New Testament. Um, And so I challenged you last week, we 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 don't abandon Jesus, right? We don't abandon Jesus. The resurrected Jesus is one that we never abandon because he's never going to abandon us. He will never abandon us, particularly to the afterlife. Uh, David had this hope that's verified for us in the New Testament again, this hope that he would not be abandoned to the afterlife. And we know that we are not, and the resurrection gives us that hope. And so I challenged you last week, when you're tempted to doubt the power of God or the goodness of God, remember the resurrection is the greatest proof of both, his power, his goodness, giving you reason to remain close to him and to trust him. So we'll turn our attention now to Psalm 36. I want to read to you the entire chapter this morning. Starting in verse 1, it says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. 
our summary sentence for today. God's steadfast love is experienced by those who choose to reject the whispers of sin and instead seek refuge in life from him. God's steadfast love is experienced by those who choose to reject the whispers of sin and instead seek refuge and life from him. For our kids, God loves those who turn to him. God loves those who turn to him. What we see in Psalm 36 is a a contrast. Starts off showing us the, the way of the sinner or the corruption of the sinner. Then it transitions to showing us the, the, the way of God or the character of God. And then the application, the, the choosing between the two. Will we choose to go the way of the wicked or, or really will we choose to remain in the way of the wicked? Or will we choose to, to run and find refuge in the character of God? And that's kind of the, the last part of this chapter. Um, in preparing for Psalm 36, I couldn't help but see some of the parallels of this section, this chapter, to what we're studying in 1 John chapter 4 in our D groups this month. So if you flip over to John, 1 John chapter 4. So our D group, the men's D groups met this past week. Think about what we just read in Psalm 36 and, and, and compare it to what we see in 1 John chapter 4. Right? In 1 John chapter 4, the way we kind of broke up this section uh, or this chapter for our study, in verses 1 through 6, right, 1 John 4, 1 through 6, you see different messages that are to be evaluated, right? You've got messages that come from Christ and messages that don't come from Christ and how we're to test those spirits to see what is valid, what is accurate, what is worth following, what is worth listening to, and what is not. Here at the beginning of Psalm chapter 36, we see messages as well, right? We see transgression or temptation speaking to the heart of the wicked, right? Seeking to lead him astray, seeking to deceive him. That's the wordage used in Psalm 36, real similar to 1 John chapter 4, the testing of the spirits. Will we listen to what we are hearing? Then you see in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, communication to us about God's love. Right? We find out that God is love in 1 John chapter 4. Right? And we're also seeing God's love, his steadfast love, communicated to us in the middle section of Psalm 36. Right? So testing of the spirits, the messaging, the deceit, the sinfulness found in both of these chapters. God's love communicated to us in both of these chapters as well. Will we see the extent and the measure of his love? And then lastly, the last part of this section in 1 John chapter 4 verses 13 down, really talks to us about what it looks like to abide with God, to abide with him in his love. And then we see this also in Psalm 36, right? The, the benefits of pursuing refuge with this God of love. We, we see the satisfaction, the, the drinking from the river, the, the abundance that's given to us in God's kingdom. So a lot of similarities between Psalm 36 and 1 John chapter 4. So for our ladies who are continuing to study, let me encourage you to continue studying 1 John chapter 4 in anticipation of our D groups this week and to, to compare and contrast what you see in Psalm 36 today because there's a lot of parallels that tie in with this. Psalm 36, so going back to the Old Testament now. This passage, and and hopefully you've seen, even in the songs that were chosen today, the the topic of God's love, right? The topic of God's love, it's a theme in 1 John chapter 4. It's certainly a theme for us here in Psalm 36. The idea of verse 5, your steadfast love, O Lord, it extends to the heavens. 
Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. In our discussion Wednesday with our D group, I challenged our guys with this question. What do you think of, or what's your initial reaction, your initial thought to the statement, God is love? I want to give you a minute to ponder that. What's, what's your initial reaction, your initial thought, when you see God is love? Now, I confess to my D group that when I see this statement, particularly when it's attached to a bumper sticker or a t-shirt, I go into defense mode. Because my initial reaction, ashamedly, is, no, he's not, Right? And I don't mean that God is not love. What I'm typically thinking and meaning is he's not what you're saying that he is, right? And this is what the Bible tells us, right? The Bible tells us God is love in 1 John chapter 4. But the enemy has taken this phrase, this concept, and has hijacked it. And we talked about this in our D group, how it has been hijacked and used as justification for our sinful choices, right? We've taken it and we have said God is love, which means God is not a bunch of other things, is how the world uses this, right? What we know is that scripture tells us God is love, and that that conclusion flows from everything else God is, right? The enemy wants us to disconnect this concept of God is love and to say God is love and he's not any of the other things, whereas the Christian belief would say in conclusion to all of the things that God is, He is love, right? And so we want to see God's love through this chapter today because if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we will fall prey to the world's messaging. We'll fall prey to it, right? As we buddy up with people who have maybe chosen sinful lifestyles, um, we may grow sympathetic to them as a person, and therefore we begin to grow sympathetic to the choices that they're making and we become sometimes tempted to dismiss the sin in light of who they are, right? And we fall prey to this mindset that because God is love, he certainly wouldn't judge an individual. He certainly wouldn't punish an individual. He certainly wouldn't go after the repentance of an individual. And that's certainly not what we see in Scripture, right? Psalm 36 is a great example of this, right? Before we even see a discussion about God's love, what are we seeing? We're seeing a discussion about man's sin, right? Even the songs that we sang about today, you can't sing about God's love without also singing about what God did in response to our sin, right? His love is known. His love is known by us because of his reaction to our sin. Him sending his son Christ to die in our place, right? It it communicates to us that he does take sin seriously, that he feels sin does have to be judged. If not, then he doesn't have to send his son, right? And so let us us not forget that Psalm 36 is a chapter about God's love, but it certainly begins with an emphasis on man's sin and the consequences of man's sin. So we don't want to lose sight of that. Even though the world would have us to see God is love and try to disconnect it from everything else that Scripture tells us, we have to see that God is love as a conclusion or a summary sentence for everything that God is. So let's look at the text and kind of see uh, what we learn about God's love through this chapter. Number one, 
We need to start by recognizing the sinful corruption of the human heart. The sinful corruption of the human heart. David communicates to us our darkness as individuals. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Think about what David is saying here. He's saying that we are prone to sin because we are wicked at our core, desiring godlessness, right? Who we are, born into this world, we are born wicked to our core, deep in our heart. It's who we are. We are born with a desire for there to be no God, right? We don't want God before our eyes because if there is no God, then we become our own God. We get to choose and pick and live how we want to. We're prone to sin because we are wicked at our core, desiring godlessness. This chapter, this, this verse particularly, reminds us of the doctrine of the inherent or original sin that we all possess, right? So we don't, we don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we are sinners, right? And this is a super important doctrine because it, it really, understanding this doctrine helps us to understand everything that comes after in the gospel, of who Jesus is and why Jesus came and why we desperately need Jesus for salvation, right? It's because of our original sin. It's because of our inherent sin. We are sinful because of Adam and Eve, right? And this, this, this chapter, right, we don't just see that doctrine in Genesis. We see it right here in Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. It's who we are. It's who we are. The proof of this doctrine is how easily we are tempted to sin right? It's not just that the Bible tells us this. We see verification for this truth. We see verification that, that we are all born sinful because it's so easy for us to sin. It's so easy for us to sin. Like we, our kids don't have to be taught to sin. None of us were ever taught to sin. We have to be taught obedience, right? We have to be taught righteousness. We have to be taught holiness because everything inside of us wants to be the opposite of those things. James chapter 1 reminds us that when we are tempted to sin, it's of ourselves and not something that, that God has placed upon us, right? James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This doctrine is proved by the fact that we are so easily drawn to sin. It doesn't oftentimes take a lot of coercion to get us into a position of, of desiring the things that sin offers to us. But we also see proof of this doctrine and how extreme God had to respond to get us out of this condition, right? Think about what we find in, in 1 John chapter 4. Right? What we're learning is that God is love, and he shows that he is love by sending his son to die in our place. Right? If sin wasn't serious, if sin wasn't as serious as this chapter is telling us, deep to our heart, deep to our core, then it wouldn't necessitate him coming and dying in our place. No, there would be other alternatives. If it wasn't as serious as, as we think it is, then we could find salvation another way. But no, sin is to the core. Sin is to the depths of our heart. And it took a great response from God to get us out of it. 
This doctrine is proved by how extreme God had to respond to get us out of this condition. David tells us that sin seeks to whisper to the deepest emotions of our heart in order to deceive us. It keeps going deeper and deeper to get to us. And we're susceptible to sin most when we minimize the existence and the awareness of God, right? We begin to listen to the whispers of sin deep in our heart when we have no fear of God, when he's not before our eyes, when we're not keeping him in our, in our focus and in our attention, right? Paul talks about this, this section in Psalm 36 in Romans chapter 3. He reminds us of our sin, and he's, he's building a case before Jew and Gentile alike in Genesis chapter 3, or Romans chapter 3, that we all need salvation because none of us are good. Look what it says in verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Look what verse 18 says. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the condition of humankind. No fear of God, drawn to sin that speaks to the depths of our heart where we are sinners to the core. And sin can be so smooth and so uh, seductive in its presentation that we, we don't fear the living God. We don't fear falling into his hands, right? Hebrews 10, 30-31 talks about the horror of falling into the hands of a living God to, to come into the to presence of God in, in sin, in unrepentant sin. What a horrible thing. And yet sin would deceive us into thinking that it's not a big deal. Without a true picture of God to fear, man becomes his own measure of morality. And how could man ever find or hate iniquity in himself? David says we're prone to sin because we're wicked to the core. We desire godlessness. And yet, even in that state, we try to use God to justify what we do, right? God is love. It's been hijacked. A, a phrase or a statement that we should all desire to have on a bumper sticker. We should all desire to have that on a t-shirt. That should be our message, and yet it's been hijacked. Similar to the rainbow, right? A, a symbol of God's promise, of his assurance, of his faithfulness, and yet the sinful world has taken it and used it as their, as their symbol of justification for how they live, Right? Losing sight of the fact that the rainbow comes about because a group of people, a, a population of the world, living in sexual sin, God punishes with the flood. And now people in sexual sin taking that promise, that assurance, and using it to justify how they live. God is love. He is love. And he's loving in that he deals with our sin. Right? He doesn't leave us in our sin. He loves us to deal with our sin. Number two, we're prone to sin because we minimize its severity, thinking it is unknown and unserious. We are prone to sin because we minimize its severity, thinking it is unknown and unserious. Look what he says in verse two, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. This is the wicked 
The wicked who is listening to the whispers of sin in his heart, not fearing God, he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. This hijacking of God as love is that man has been conditioned to no longer fear God. We don't fear his judgment or we believe he doesn't judge. Right? That's where our world is at and that's the message that's being presented both to us as adults but maybe even more importantly to our kids. And none of us are really exempt from hearing that message and um, not being drawn to it if, if we're not keeping God at the forefront of our attention, right? Remember, we talked from Psalm 119. How do we keep our way pure? Right, by guarding it according to your word, right? If any of us deviate from being in God's word, deviate from keeping God at the forefront of our minds and attention, and we will, we will give to this, this message of the world. We'll give to it, right? And so we're challenged here to see that, man, sin, it, it causes us to flatter ourselves into thinking that iniquity can't be found out or that it shouldn't be hated. We flatter ourselves into thinking that our sin will go unnoticed or will not be dealt with because it isn't something hated. It's our coping method. And whether you're a believer this morning or not, we typically do this, right? We'll, we'll look at our actions. It's never as bad as if somebody else were doing the same action, right? And we'll justify it in thinking that it's not hurting anybody else or, or nobody else really knows about it or really it's not that bad and not something that, that really should be hated. That's us flattering ourselves. It's us deceiving ourselves. It's us failing to see how wicked we are to the core that our heart and feelings can't oftentimes be trusted, Right? And so we give into this thinking that, oh, my situation's different. It's not going to be found out. It's not something that should be hated. The enemy wants, us to, wants to convince us that if we were created a certain way, then fault can't be found with us. Right? Think about how the enemy has even hijacked the doctrine of original sin. Right? We say, as believers, we are born into sin. We are born with sinful tendencies, right? We are born bent towards unholiness. And unless something changes, we are dead in that state. The enemy comes alongside and he communicates to, to people, to individuals, you are who you are. You feel what you feel. You desire what you desire because that's how you were created and it's not your fault. That doctrine of original sin has been hijacked as well. Right? That's the messaging, particularly when it comes to gender is issues and sexual issues today. Right? The messaging is, this is how you were, you were created. God would not judge you for that. And yet the message of the gospel is, you were born this way, and God is going to judge you. Right? Come to Christ. Come to salvation. Come find refuge in him. The enemy says, no need to panic. Right? No need to panic. God is love right? God is rainbows. God, God, is, God is going to take care of you. You don't have to change because this is how you were made to be. It's not your fault, right? That's the message of the enemy, and it flatters us, and it deceives us, and it speaks to the core of our heart. And unless God is in the forefront of our attention, we will hear this message and be drawn to it. Number three, we're prone to sin because we rationalize evil rejecting wisdom, and accepting falsehood. 
It says in verse 3, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. We start putting ourselves in a position to be sympathetic towards sin when we stop rejecting it as evil. Right? The moment that we start to entertain the idea that something that we have heard our whole life, that it's sin, the moment that we start to open our mind to say, maybe it's not. Maybe it shouldn't be rejected as evil. Right? Now we're, now we're, now we're on a path to sympathy towards that, to accepting it, and maybe even in engaging in it ourselves. Think about what's being described here, the wicked deceit, lack of wisdom, rationalizing in his bed, accepting versus rejecting something that he no longer considers evil anymore. These are all problem areas that lead deeper into sin. Think about what we learned in Psalm 16, right? Psalm 36 tells us that the wicked lays in bed and plots trouble while he's there. But think about what we're told to do in Psalm 16 with our time in bed. Verse 7 of Psalm chapter 16. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Right? Both individuals are laying in bed at night. Both of them are seeking counsel. One being deceived. Right? One going the way of the world. The other keeping the Lord at the forefront of his mind and seeking counsel from him. We're prone to sin. We're prone to sin because we are born into sin. We are wicked to the core. And if we're not careful, we will uh, rationalize sin. We will reduce the severity of sin. We'll think that it'll never be known, that it will never be serious in God's eyes. Our decision-making, no longer acting wisely, not acting good, not guarding our hearts, not keeping ourselves pure through the word. We stop seeing ourselves as sinners which enables us to stop seeing our actions as sinful. Let me say that again. That's, that's, that's what the world wants us to do. To stop seeing ourselves as sinners, which enables us to stop seeing our actions as sinful. That's the message of the world. God is love. You are not a sinner. Your actions are not sinful. That's transgression speaking to the depth of your heart. Will you listen or will you, will you ignore, will you shun that message? The same way First John 4 says, test the spirits. If it's not of God, if it doesn't align with God's word, we don't, we don't follow it, we don't listen to it, we don't obey it, right? We test the spirits to see if it's consistent with God's word. Second thing, not only do we see the sinful corruption of the human heart, we need to recognize the steadfast character of God's heart. Recognize the steadfast character of God's heart. Verse 5, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. We see, first of all, here the loving faithfulness of God. It has no limits. It has no limits. It extends to the heavens, to the clouds. His love is capable of extending deeper than our sin or further than our sin. Our hope is that, yes, while we are sinners, he still remains a steadfast, loving God. We need that message that God is love, right? Because if we don't have that messaging, the moment that we see ourselves as sinners, right, we will run from him 
If we don't believe that he's a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious God, right? The ways that he describes himself in Exodus 34, right? Moses says, let me see you. And God says, here's who I am, right? Steadfast love, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. If we don't, if we don't see God as love, we will see our sin and we will run from him. We will flee from him. We will hide from him. His steadfast love extends to the heavens, to the, to the clouds. What we see in the first section of Psalm 36 is that we are so bad that Jesus had to die for us. Right? First John 4 tells us that. We are so bad that Jesus had to die for us. But what we also see is that we are so loved that Jesus wanted to die for us too. That's, that's the glory of the gospel, is that we are so bad that Jesus has to die for us, right? We can't save ourselves. We sang about that this morning. Like, our works of our hands, we, we, can't, we can't atone for our mistakes. No, we are so bad that our only hope is for Jesus to come and die for us. He's a God of justice. He's a God of judgment. But he's also a God of love, and it's also the fact that we were so loved that Jesus wanted to die for us. He wanted to die for us. Don't lose sight, though, of the fact that God's greatest demonstration of being love is in response to how bad our sin really is. Don't lose sight. The fact that God's greatest demonstration of being love is in response to how bad our sin really is. If we belong to him, he will never let us go, not because he loves us with our sin, but because he loves us through our sin. Right? It's a steadfast love, but he doesn't just willfully accept us in our sin and say, hey, you are who you are, you were created this way, you get to stay that way. No, his love says, I'm going to bring you out of it. I'm going to rescue you out of that. Right? I'm going to speak to the core of your heart, and I'm going to change that heart, and I'm going to draw you out of darkness into light because I love you. Because I love you. His love is his goodness and his power being applied to specific people, right? So Psalm 16, we talked about God's goodness, right? He's the source of all good. We talked about the power of God, that he has the ability to bring all good to people. When we talk about his love, we're talking about his goodness and his power being applied to you, right? God loves you, then that means God is going to bring goodness to you with all the power that he possesses, right? He can be good and he can be powerful and you not be a participant in that, right? If you're outside the covenant community, right? In the Old Testament, if you were outside of believing Israel, you weren't receiving his goodness and his power and his love. In the New Testament, if you're outside the believing church, right? Not just a part of a church because there's plenty of people in church today worshiping this Sunday morning who are outside the covenant community, right? But if you are part of the believing church, This is what you leave with today is your great hope, that God's goodness and his power are not just abstract ideas that are out there that are just neat to think about. No, they apply to you. He has chosen to love you, which means he takes his goodness and his power and he funnels it to you. And he's already done that in the greatest way possible by sending Christ on your behalf to die for your sin and to come back to life three days later, giving you hope of resurrection. 
right? We were dead in our sins. Transgression was speaking to our heart. We were wicked. We were flattering ourselves that there is no God. And if there is, he's a loving God and we will never have our sin found out or he will never hate what we do because it's who we are. It's how we were created. No, his steadfast love says, I'm not going to leave you that way. I'm not going to leave you that way. I'm going to rescue you from it. Number two, the righteous judgment of God has no hindrances. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. His righteousness, his goodness extends higher than any of our attempts at morality, right? And his judgments run as deep as our sin. It's not a shallow judgment or a short-sighted judgment. I mean, his, his judgments go to the great depths of our heart. But he doesn't just come there to judge it, right? Man and beast you save, O Lord. That brings us to number three. The protective provision of God has no exclusions, right? No hindrances to God's judgment, right? High as the mountains, as deep as the ocean's depths. Right? He, he, he is righteous and good and will bring justice. But because he's a loving God, his love extends to the heavens. It extends into the clouds. We know that he is a God of salvation. He brings protection and provision for those who will run to him. Rather than running from him, we are encouraged to run to him. We don't need to justify our sin. We don't need to excuse our sin. We can instead run to him to receive refuge and forgiveness. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Right? Notice that the sinner is not being welcomed into the love of God as is. No, the sinner is having to run to God for what? For refuge. Refuge from what? Refuge from the judgment that he deserves, right? He had been listening to the whispers of sin. He had been responding to that temptation to sin. He had been giving in, flattering himself and deceiving himself and plotting evil on his bed. No, he runs to God for refuge from the judgment that he deserves, And what he finds when he runs to God is that God's nature is to be a saving God. A saving God. In spite of our sin ruining this world, God takes broken things and rebuilds them, right? Man and beast. I think it's a nod to what we find in Romans chapter 8, right? Not necessarily a passage to come claiming that, that, that animals can get saved, right? But I do believe man and beast points to the idea of what we see in Romans 8 that all creation is longing and groaning for Jesus to come back, to set things right, right? Creation is self-aware enough that it's not what it's supposed to be either, right? The rocks are crying out. Creation is crying out, come Lord Jesus and fix everything. He's a saving type of God. He's a restoring type of God. We run to him for refuge and we find a God who rebuilds, who fixes, who changes. He's a God who saves And when we run to him and we're fixed by him, we experience the fullest satisfaction possible in coming to him. Right? Look at all the benefits and the blessings that are applied. No, no, no exclusions here. Right? 
no exclusions. Sometimes you maybe get a, um, a coupon in the mail that says that you get like a discount on the favorite store that you shop at. Then you kind of read the coupon and at the bottom, it says like some exclusions apply, right? And it always lists off the brands. Like for me, like if I'm thinking, if I'm going to Dick's or Academy or Bass Pro, like the coupon always excludes the brands that I want to go buy, right? Like it's, it's really not a good coupon because I'm excluded from really being able to use it. That's not what we find when we come running to God. There are no exclusions here, right? Everybody's coming and everybody's finding refuge in the shadow of his wings, right? Everybody's finding. Some commentators think that the shadow, the shadow of the wings is an allusion to the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, right? Where God's punishment would be applied, where blood would be shed by the, by the animal sacrifices for sin, that we can come and dwell there and be shadowed by his wings there. Others use it to, a, uh, to see an allusion to how a mother hen would gather her, her uh, baby chicks and protect them and guard them and even be willing to die for them under the care of her wings. I think both are a great picture because both are accurate, right? God provides that type of protection. And he has certainly provided that type of protection all the way to the Ark of the Covenant for us. But we come and we find this type of refuge. We find a feasting on the abundance of his house. Drink from the river of his delights the fountain of life springing up and light being given to us, right? It makes me think too of what we saw in Psalm 16 at the end of that chapter. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Are we giving up things when we come to Christ for salvation? Yeah, yeah. There are harmful things, broken things, sinful relationships that we give up right? And, and, and the enemy would say, man, God's not good, right? God doesn't want what's best for you. And it really comes down to, do we believe that he is the source of all good? Do we believe that in giving up, in laying aside these other things, do we believe that, that what is available to us in him far exceeds everything this world has to offer? The enemy would trick us into thinking, no, now you hang on to that activity. You hang on to that attitude. You hang on to that individual. It's better than anything God could offer you. The message of the gospel is no. He, he, he has far more than we could ever ask or think available to us. And if we'll, if we'll ever click with us, if it'll ever click that that is better, man, it will motivate us to run to him, right? I had to go pick up my kids from uh, my mom's house yesterday. So they spent the night, Friday night, and... Um, they have a great time at grandma's house, right? They get to eat things and watch things and do things. And, you know, they stay up late and they get up early. And it's always kind of a chore to go pick them up, right? Me and my wife, neither one of us really like that duty to go pick up kids from grandma's house because they just want to stay, right? And you usually don't have anything great to offer them that exceeds grandma's house, right? Because they, they love being at grandma's house. And it's like, hey, let's go home. We got to clean your room up. No, like, I'm not doing that, right? Hey, come home. We got we to gotta get ready for school tomorrow. No, like, no, we don't want to do that, right? But man, I had the trump card yesterday, right? So I show up, and I've already arranged for Jeremy and his kids to come to my house. Jeremy's doing some work for me around my house. And so his kids are just waiting at my house to play with my kids, right? And so I kind of come in and do the whole thing. Hey, we got to get our stuff together. It's time to go home. And everybody's like, no, no, we don't want to. And I looked at Mally and I said, hey, guess what? I said, Lenny is waiting for you at our house. And she got wide-eyed and she said, let's go. Let's get out of here. 
it's time to go. And she starts rounding up her brothers. He's like, we got to go. We got to go. The Forbes kids are at our house, right? Mom, if you're listening, it's not that the Forbes kids are better than you, right? But mom, grandma time was expiring, and they knew that. And they knew they were entering into something great at home to go to as well, right? It clicked for Mally. Hey, I don't have to fight dad right now to stay and have fun at grandma's because he's, he's got something great at home waiting for me as well. Sin would trick us into thinking, hey, stay behind. Like, stay behind and keep doing what you're doing. There's nothing great for you in running to him. But David challenges, he says, you come get refuge here and see what you get. Yeah, you left some things behind, but see what you enjoy. Pleasures forevermore. The fullest satisfaction possible in coming to, coming to him. Number three, recognize the sure confidence of the believer's heart. We'll wrap up with this last section here. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Three points here. Number one, the love of God is applied to those who know him. Right? David prays and asks God, he says, continue your steadfast love. Seems kind of redundant, right? Steadfast love does continue. And yet he cries out to God and he says, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. Right? We pursue that knowledge of him. We run to him and we experience the love of God. And again, we said the love of God is his goodness and his power being funneled to you. The love of God is applied to those who know him. The goodness of God is shared with those who follow him. Your righteousness or your goodness, your rightness, let that continue to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, right? Like, like don't let me flatter myself. Don't let me deceive myself like the wicked back at the beginning of this chapter, right? Don't let me be arrogant. Don't let me lose sight of you. Don't let me remove God from my eyes and fall into sin. He says, no, the goodness of God, I want that. I desire that. Keep it coming to me and keep me following you. Don't let me slip. Don't let me have arrogance in my life that would cause me to listen to those whispers of sin. Don't let the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Number three, the power of God is experienced by those who rely upon him. The power of God is experienced by those who rely upon him. You see no arrogance in David here that, hey, I've got this, God. I'm gonna keep following you. No chance of me stumbling. No, he's crying out to God and saying, keep me, keep me humble. Keep me protected from the wicked. Don't let me fall like they fall. Keep me close to you. Our application for today. Just some questions to kind of have you thinking. Again, whether you're a believer here or not, I don't, I don't know if everybody here is a believer. All right, so some of you are, are so entangled in sin, you've never let go of it, you've never come to him. You need to be awakened today. You need to see the goodness of God. You need to see the power of God and that those two things can come to you in the form of the love of God. Not with him saying, I will love you even though you're sinful and you can stay that way. no saying, I will love you even though you are sinful if you will come and run to me for refuge? Are you presuming upon God's love to justify your current sin? Those of us that are believers, we're not exempt from this, right? 
we too may fall uh, into this, this trick of thinking that, hey, God is love and he won't judge this sin that I'm still hanging on to. No, set it aside. Set it aside and come to him and experience the abundance that he promises. Will you continue in sin pretending that God will not punish? Or will you run to Jesus for shelter? Just like Rahab, who recognized her own sin and recognized that her city was falling, recognizing that the God of Israel, Yahweh, was coming, she talked to those two spies, and she said, take me with you. Tell me how to run to him. I'm not running from Jericho to the next city. I want to run to your people. I want to be with your people. I want to be a part of your God. Let me close with Micah chapter 2. This is a warning to us. And I read this this morning, and I thought, man, this applies so good to what we've already seen the last several weeks. Look what Micah chapter 2 verse 1 says. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. I mean, that sounds like exactly what we just read about today, right? Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. Well, that sounds like Psalm 16, right? Not being content with your plot lines and your property lines. Instead, going outside of God's will to seize things that you want, right? He says, you devise wickedness on your beds. You wake up the next morning and you do your desires. You covet fields and you go get them houses and you take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will become a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Man, what a stark warning there for us, right? This, this messaging of like the wicked who devise plans, who carry out those plans, who aren't content with God, who try to become their own God and go make their own goodness. He says, be careful because disaster comes towards those people, right? And, and, and their, their, their plot lines and their lot lines are all thrown out of whack when that happens. And God's still at work and God's still moving. He's just moving in a different way now when we give in to that type of wickedness. Let me encourage you to ponder and to think, where are you at right now in your level of commitment, your level of devotion to him? Are you keeping him at the forefront of your attention? Are you, are you listening to the whispers of sin or are you fighting against it? Are you rejecting evil for what it is? Are you running to him for refuge? Let's pray. God, we love you because you love us. You have done a work necessary in us so that we see you and desire you and we thank you for that today. Unless you had decided to move and work in our hearts, we would have remained blinded in our sin, content to be without you. But God, you've awakened us and now we see. And God, help us to keep seeing. Help us to keep wanting and desiring the things of you. God, for those that are in this room that aren't believers, I pray that you would awaken them in the same way. 
God, help them to see that they have flattered themselves into thinking that their sin is not serious, that it will not be found out, and it will not be judged. God, help them not to hear the message of the world that you are love, that you're love alone, and that you're not any of the other things the Bible says. No, God, help them to hear this morning that you are love, which is the climax and the culmination of everything that you are. You are a God of justice. You are a God who hates sin. You are a God who judges sin. But you are a God who sent his son to die for sin. We thank you for that type of steadfast love. Thank you for applying it to us. Thank you for loving us as your children. God, help us to love you back. Help us to love you back today. As we leave today, God, keep us loving you throughout this week. Help us not to be arrogant. Help us not to be drawn away by the things of the wicked. God, help us to keep our eyes set on the pleasures forevermore that you offer us. Help us to realize the things that we are letting go of and the things that we are saying no to will always pale in comparison to the things that you have waiting for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.